But today we're continuing on our series in 1 Peter. It's called Standing Firm in God's Grace. And today is part one of a sermon called Choosing the Chosen Exiles. So it was two months after I got married, barely two months, that I had what I thought was a terrible dream. It's really three dreams, just one after the other. In the first dream, there was a car, a pickup truck coming to me very quickly. And I remember pulling up my hands and the car crashed into me and the dream ended. The next dream shortly after was that I was in an ambulance and I was being rushed down on the highways of Los Angeles and there was a lot of sirens going and there were paramedics around trying to care for me and the dream ended. Then I had a third dream that I was being wheeled into a hospital and there were nurses and doctors around talking urgently to each other. And when that dream ended, I, I, was, I started to wake up and I thought, what a terrible dream, except I woke up and it wasn't a dream. I'd actually been in a, a bad car accident, but I had no recollection of anything except for those just brief moments. What I was told is later... I kept telling all the doctors, all the nurses the same thing. I said, call my wife, and I gave them the phone number. Call my wife, and I gave them the phone number. What this shows in one sense is that when stress comes, there are certain things that we value the most that are most important to us. I don't have any memory of saying that, but I was told that's what happened, and thankfully they did call my new wife, and I, I, as you can see, I'm, by God's grace, I'm standing here. But when we face hostility, that's when we go back to what is most important to us. It reveals actually what is most important to us. And so when we come to 1 Peter, we're dealing with the people who are going through intense persecution, hostility, and Peter has to remind them of all the things you can think about. This is the most important. Let this be on your minds all the time because this is actually God's true grace that will help you to stand firm. See, God's grace was directly tied to this truth that Peter opens the letter with, which is why we're taking our time to understand it because the rest of the letter is based on that. And so what's the most important thing for suffering saints to hear? It's right here in 1 Peter. And we're going to read these verses right now, 1 Peter 1, 1 through 2. So I invite you to stand with me as I read them out of respect to God's word. And remember, this is Holy Scripture. So let's read Follow along 1 Peter verses 1, chapter 1, 1 through 2. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those chosen living as exiles dispersed abroad in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit to be obedient and to be sprinkled with the blood of Jesus Christ. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. The commandment of the Lord is pure. It enlightens our eyes, so welcome it today. And please have a seat. Well, this one verse has a big idea. It's got three key parts here. And this reveals three acts of God's choosing. Three acts of God's choosing. And it's been revealed to us in order to fortify your confidence that you can actually stand firm when trials come. So the first act is that the plan of God is to know you. The second act that will fortify your confidence is that the power of God is to transform you. And the third one is the purpose of God to conform you. 
Three acts, they're all designed to build your faith that when trial comes, you will stand firm. Now, if you look at verse 2, we read it just a second ago, you see there are three phrases here, three parts, and each one is showing us the behind the scenes of what happened before you came to faith in Jesus Christ. So these Christians have been chosen for salvation. First, it says they're according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. That's the plan of God for you. Then secondly, it has happened according to the, through the sanctifying work of the Spirit. That's the power of God to transform you. And thirdly, we are chosen to be obedient and to be sprinkled with the blood of Jesus Christ. That's the power of God to, the purpose of God to conform you. So did you notice that each member of the Trinity is involved here? All of God is unified to work out your salvation. The Father, the Spirit, and the Son. But they're completely and perfectly unified in specific roles. And what we see here is that they're choosing. It's proactive. It's, it's almost aggressive. It is pre-planned. And here's the great hope for believers. It cannot be thwarted. So the Trinity together chooses and creates every Christian. Now, God wants you to know that he is this involved in bringing you to salvation. And the reality is we would not know this if Scripture had not revealed it to us because we don't know what happened before we came to life in Christ. So we're going to look just at the first phrase today, according to the foreknowledge of God. And there's so much here we want to pause and consider it. And when we understand what God means by foreknowledge, dear believer, you will be able to be confident that God will help you to stand. This is a precious truth. So we're going to consider five elements of this truth. And the first is the foundation of foreknowledge. The foundation of foreknowledge. So you look at back at verse 1. Peter says, these are the chosen living as exiles and they're dispersed abroad. But they're chosen. So these three ideas, chosen, exile, and dispersed, that is the identity of the believer. These are mindsets that we are meant to have to help us carry on to follow Christ. Now, I wonder if some of you have thought, when I was saved, when I came to faith in Christ, why didn't he just evacuate me off this earth? Why didn't he just take me home? Why am I still here? Well, we are dispersed here because he has commissioned you for a purpose. You are here, believer, to share the gospel among all nations and to make disciples wherever you go. But Christians are not just dispersed, we are exiles. That means the world treats us as outsiders. And so, we might share some of the same values, same football teams that we like, same food, but you see how much of an outsider you are when you point out the sin of other people and call them to repentance. One of the abominations in our culture is to actually claim that Jesus Christ is the only Lord and Savior. And it doesn't matter how sweetly you say it, you'll be maligned for claiming this and following Christ. Now, the reason why you're treated as an exile is because you are chosen. You're chosen according to his sovereign will. Now, a couple weeks ago, we looked at that word chosen, what was involved in it. But what we saw is that God doesn't choose because of anything good in you. God chooses because of what's good in him. He wants to set his love upon you. And so out of the masses of undeserving people, he fixed his gaze on you alone. And he said, I want, to, I want to pull you out. I want to love you. I want to make you a permanent citizen of heaven. And so now, dear Christian, you have new convictions, new principles, new affections. 
you have a spiritual DNA that is incompatible with this world. And so another way to describe what we are is that great phrase in 2 Corinthians 5, that you are ambassadors. Listen to what it says here. This is part of our mission for being here. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. So what's our job as ambassadors? What does that mean? It's to let God make his appeal through us. Well, how how does that happen? How does God make his appeal through us? 2 Corinthians 5.20 continues, We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. So you're not here for a social revolution. You're not here for some environmental crusade. You are here to help people, to plead with them to be reconciled to God through Jesus Christ. Now we gather here every Lord's Day morning to exalt Christ. But we scatter throughout the week to evangelize the lost, to plead with them, be reconciled to God. Now oftentimes when we do that, we we get some pushback, some hostility. People tend to reject that. We don't like that. So we might be uh, tempted to pull together for protection or support. But one of the great pastors of the past century, Alexander McLaren, he was a Scottish pastor in Manchester. He said this, seed in a basket isn't in the right place, but sown over the field, it will be waving wheat in a month or two. So we're here to be ambassadors, to tell people about the Lord Jesus Christ. But when that persecution hits, there's a purpose for it, to get us out of the basket, to spread that seed abroad. Now, you see this in in Acts. The first persecution that comes against the church is when Stephen is martyred for the faith. And right after that, a big persecution breaks out. And what happens? The gospel is scattered and people hear about the Lord Jesus Christ. The church grows What's interesting is you see the same thing happening today. Over the last few decades, China has charted booming growth, but not the kind of growth that President Xi wants to have happen. You see, it was just a few years ago, a couple years ago, The Economist reported that in spite of communism's crackdowns on Protestant Christianity, that faith is the fastest growing faith in China. Now, we can't know for certain how many people are coming to faith in Christ. It's, it's very dangerous to let it be known. So most Christians fellowship in unregistered and underground churches because oppression has been severe, lately especially. But if growth has continued as it had been in the last few years, it's estimated by the end of this decade, the number of Christians in China will surpass 300 million. Somebody's been an ambassador there. Somebody is dispersing among that country and telling people about Christ, pleading for reconciliation, and God is granting that. So the foundation of God's foreknowledge is he made a choice. He made a choice that it talks about this in Ephesians 1. Our heavenly father chose us in Christ Jesus before the foundation of the world. Now, his, this choice of us is effective. It cannot be thwarted. In verse 5 of Ephesians 1, it says, In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. Can you imagine that? Before the foundation of this world, the Father made a choice independently of any person. He wasn't influenced by circumstances. He wasn't influenced by personality. In fact, in places in the Bible, it talks about that he is completely uninfluenced. Listen to Daniel 4.35. 
all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? God has complete freedom in his choice. And since God is good, since God is just, since he is true, we can believe his choice is right, will bring him the greatest glory, and believer, it brings you the greatest joy. So the foundation of God's plan to know you is his sovereign choice. That should fortify us that we can stand firm because God's choice was rooted in his eternal will. It wasn't rooted in you being winsome or intelligent, something that you can fall out of. Nothing caused God to choose you, beloved Christian. And nothing's going to cause him to unchoose you. It was his choice. So foreknowledge is crucial to our standing firm. So we want to understand what does the Bible mean by foreknowledge? So we're going to look next at the facts of foreknowledge. The facts of foreknowledge. Now, it's common to think of foreknowledge in this way. Foreknowledge means foresight, to know about ahead of time. So it's understood in this way, misunderstood, I would add, that God looked down through the quarters of time, and he he looked at who would choose him. And then he said, oh, you're going to choose me? Then I, I choose you. He responded to what we had, he saw we were going to do. Now, God is omniscient. He knows beforehand. He foreknows our actions, but then this view says he chooses because of what he sees we'll do. What's interesting about this view is it's really appealing to our flesh. It's really appealing to our natural self because, first of all, it appeals to us because we want some credit for our salvation. Our pride steps in, and we don't like the fact that we come with nothing to offer. We want to have some part of it. Part of us, too, feels like it's unfair if I didn't have a say in it. So our natural inclination is to reject that foreknowledge means anything other than having awareness of what will happen. But you need to know there's some problems with this view. First of all, the, the meaning of that word doesn't allow for this view. So Peter talks about the same word. Look down at verse 20 about Jesus Christ. He says, He, Christ, was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for you. Okay, so let's try to fit in this idea of foresight in this passage. So is it meaning that God knew what Jesus would do, and then he said, Oh, then I choose Jesus to be the Savior of mankind? Of course not. We, we know that's not what happened. There was a plan in eternity past of what Christ would do. There's no reason to grammatically, theologically, or biblically to think that the foreknowledge in verse 20 is different than how it's used in verse 2. It means that God didn't just know about, but his knowing brought it about. Now, if Christ was foreknown in this way, what it means for you, believer, is God foreknew you to be his child. Now, this idea wasn't new here. Peter preached on this over 30 years earlier. Acts chapter 2, the day of Pentecost, he stands up, he proclaims, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Did you catch that? Jesus was delivered by the definite predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. So foreknowledge and definite plan are connected. There's a deliberate, unstoppable choice and it's not knowing by merely observing. It's knowing in the sense of bringing the plan into reality. And by the way, 
this doctrine of God's foreknowledge isn't some cold, stale doctrine in the church. It is hot with evangelistic zeal. Over 3,000 people responded to the gospel on that day as they were told God knew them beforehand and drew them to himself. I just want to touch on a few other places in the Bible that help us understand this idea of foreknowledge. In the Old Testament, here are some highlights. Exodus 33, 17. God is speaking to Moses. And listen to how God's acting is bound to his predetermined relationship with Moses. So Exodus 33, 17. This very thing that you have spoken, I will do. For you have found favor in my sight. And I know you by name. To know by name is to know intimately, not just know about. Similarly, Isaiah 49, verse 1. Isaiah says, Listen to me, O coastlands. Give attention, you peoples from afar. The Lord called me from the womb. From the body of my mother, he named my name. God didn't really just know that Isaiah would be born. He predetermined to have a unique, intimate relationship with Isaiah. Same thing with Jeremiah. He says, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. He predetermined to have a relationship with him. You can go throughout the Old Testament. This idea of knowing someone isn't just knowing facts about them. It's always used in the context of a husband knowing his wife in the most intimate way. And when you know someone in that way, it's not just knowing about how children will come about. It actually produces children. He knows someone so that the relationship turns into children. It's not just the Old Testament. The New Testament also echoes this. Matthew 7, 23. Jesus says on the day of judgment, he's going to look out and he'll say to unbelievers, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. This doesn't mean that Jesus never knew who they were. He's not looking and saying, who are you? He knew exactly who they were, but it means he never predetermined to have a saving relationship with them. Again, in John 10, 14, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. I know you as my own, and my own know me. So Jesus knows them, and the sheep know him. And what do they know? They don't just know about each other. They know each other in a saving relationship. In 2 Timothy 2.19, it says, The Lord knows those who are his. Not just knowing about them, but he knows them to the point he chose them, and he set his love upon them before they even existed. So we've seen the the foundation of the foreknowledge is that God made a free choice. The facts of foreknowledge reject this conclusion that it's merely foresight or to know about. It means to know personally, intimately, in a way that brings about what he knows. Now there still can be some pushback to this. And this is the, the third point is the friction of foreknowledge. So there are some biblical problems if we believe that foreknowledge merely means knowing about. So what are those problems? The first problem is the Lord Jesus Christ himself. John 15, 16, he says to his disciples, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. Now Jesus didn't choose them ahead of time because he knew they would choose him. He said, you would not have chosen me. I was the one who chose you. He was choosing them to be saved because they're going to bear fruit. And only people who are saved bear fruit that abides. Jesus is declaring he is sovereign, not us, in our salvation. Here's a second problem with this idea that foreknowledge means foresight. God saw, if he saw that someone choose him, 
and that's why he chooses them, then God is really at the mercy of man. He's looking for who's going to want him, and then he acts to bring about their will. God is, is not given and making plans according to our will. God makes plans, and we fit into those Unfortunately, our fallen nature is still has that pride in it. It just wants to take some bit of credit for our salvation. Not in an arrogant way, but we tend to think about, I was the one who chose God. But this flies in the face of what Scripture says. Listen to 1 Corinthians 1, starting to verse 27. God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. Now, that's not very flattering. Foolish, weak, low and despised, things that are not. Our fright hates that, doesn't it? We want some recognition. But beloved, don't you see that there's nothing you can do that would make God choose you? And there's nothing in you that would make you choose God. So why did God choose nothings like us? In 1 Corinthians 1, 29, it continues, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. He did this because he will have all the glory. So if you take foreknowledge to mean that God chose you because he saw something you would do, the first problem is it makes Man's sovereign over salvation. The second problem is that we're inclined to take some credit then for our, our salvation, but we know God does not share his glory with anyone. Here's a third problem. It assumes way too much about our spiritual ability. Okay, Romans 3.11 says, No one seeks for God. So Christian, you were not saved because you went seeking for God. He came for you when the scripture says, while you were a hater of God. Do you know why you love God today? 1 John 4, 9 says, we love because he first loved us. So he didn't respond to our choosing him. We were incapable of choosing God. And this is the best news in the world. God initiated and we responded now here's how the confusion begins. We, we have this first-person perspective because when you come to faith in Christ, you feel like, I want that. I want to choose Jesus. I decided to follow him. That's just from our first-person perspective, but it, it fails to consider what happened before that moment to make you alive spiritually. Ephesians 2.1 says you were dead in your sins. Totally unresponsive. So he had to bring you to life. That's regenerated you. Now, at that moment, God gives you two amazing gifts that are required for salvation. First, he grants you faith to believe. Ephesians 2.9, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing, it is a gift of God. It's not of your own doing, beloved. It is all a gift, including the faith to believe. So spiritually dead means incapable of even believing. God has to give you that gift but he gives you everything that he requires of you. It was one of the things that God requires of us. It's repentance. Now, everyone is dead in their sins. They don't want to turn from it. In fact, we, we love our sins. In John chapter 3, verse 19, it says, people love the darkness rather than the light because their works are evil. So when God regenerates us, he gives us the faith, and then he also gives us repentance that we would hate the sin and now to love God. Listen to Acts eleven eighteen. 18. 
Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. So repentance and faith are required for salvation. We don't have it in us to produce that or to want it. So God, in his great mercy, gives it to us. Our salvation from beginning to end is of God. And that is a firm place on which we stand. The third person perspective is what happened before we came alive in Christ. That God did the seeking. God came after us. He called us with a call that's irresistible. We couldn't have other done otherwise. The old hymn puts it this way. I sought the Lord, and afterward I knew he moved my soul to seek him, seeking me. It was not that I found, O Savior, true. No, I was found of thee. Here's a fourth problem. It means, again, God is at the mercy of man's choice. If God is responding to our choice, then he's again at our mercy, but we know ultimately He determines what happens. Listen to Isaiah 46. In verse 9, he says, I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. I have spoken and I will bring it to pass. I have purpose and I will do it. Uninfluenced, completely free. God is the architect and the builder. We respond to his purpose, not the other way around. So this friction of foreknowledge hopefully is going away as we say, I I have to give in to what scripture says. And now to help you go a little bit further, that's still a struggle, here is another crucial point about God's foreknowledge. It's based on his fatherly care. His fatherly care. So let's go back, remember who this first act of choosing is. According to the foreknowledge of God, the Father. It's the Father who did this. It means a a relationship as children to him, a perfect, personal, loving Father. The Bible emphasizes that it was done in love, his choosing. Again, Ephesians 1, 4, in love he predestined us to be adopted as sons. This is astounding, Christian. God knows everything about you and always has, and yet he still chose to fix his love upon you. And it's an exclusive, it's a delight, it is a, an affection and an action that will never fail. And for these believers who are experiencing incredible persecution because of the name of Christ, this would bolster them and help them to stand firm in that faith. And it was loaded with comfort. It was loaded with affection. What this means, dear Christian, is you've been the object of God's delight from eternity past. Really, for God to foreknow means to forelove. His love-laden foreknowledge isn't just about warm affections, it's about warm actions. One commentator noted that God's foreknowledge is an active, creative work of divine love. It's not just barely knowing ahead of time, recognizing the difference between those who believe and those who don't. Rather, God's foreknowledge creates the difference by calling people to believe. Think about all the details that had to happen so that you would be born at this time and and be alive in this place. Your parents had to meet. Their parents had to meet. All that came into place, God's kind providence, came about to bring about this moment in your life. 
And he's behind every providence, whether it's hard or good. It's all designed so that God could be glorified in his acting and we could enjoy that in our responding. God chose us to be his children so he could be our father. Now, in one sense, God is being the creator of everyone is fatherly in that way, but he has a specific love he gives those he adopts as his own. Here's a stunning thought. Jesus was baptized early in his ministry to start out with. Mark 1, verse 11, Jesus hears the father declare, you are my beloved son and with you I am well pleased. He's saying he cannot love Christ any more than he does. He cannot be more pleased than he is with Jesus Christ. And beloved, when you are in Christ Jesus, the same love that the Father has for his Son, he fixes on you. That is what it means to be foreknown by the Father, that we are his sons and daughters. It is an invitation to an intimate, loving, redemptive relationship with him. This Fatherly care is known and experienced because God foreknew you. And so when you understand this truth that what you were like before you were saved and and God came for you anyway, he came running for us, more than just amazement and adoration, it reveals the final purpose of his plan, and that's that you would stand firm in his foreknowledge, a firm standing in his foreknowledge. You can see this one phrase in verse 2 is loaded with God's true grace. A grace that will help these beleaguered Christians stand firm. But it wasn't just a pep talk. It wasn't just say, come on, you've got this. You're good, you're strong, you can, you can pull through. It, it actually gave the grace that is necessary to stand firm. Look at the end of verse 2. He says, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. And even in these words, in these truths, grace and peace are being multiplied to you. So it brings peace and brings comfort. God's love was based on his unchanging character, his unwavering affections, not my ever-changing and wavering affections. Prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. But he set his affection and seal upon us that we will never Be lost. The biblical foreknowledge leads to standing firm because of the security of God's permanent commitment to us. And it produces a convictional living. It means we can actually do this. If we're going to go through this letter, you're going to see we're interrupted with powerful truths by commands. Live this way. Do this. Look at chapter 1, verse 17. He says, conduct yourself in reverence, during your time living as strangers. Conduct yourself in reverence. How do we do that? Because of the truth that follows in verse 18. For you were redeemed from your empty way of life with the precious blood of Christ. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was revealed in his last times for your sake. That's how you can live with fear in this world and please God is because you remember what he's done for you. It helps you to stand firm. And Christian, (laughs) Just as Christ was foreknown, remember, God knew you. That's a gospel truth you can stand on. But it also leads to remaining firm in covenantal loving. In covenantal loving, God not only foreknew you, but he foreknew all the other Christians that he put around you. The good, the bad, and the ugly. And in his wisdom, God chose to put you together with them in this place at this time, no matter how long you are here. 
And this is astounding. If you just look around, just kind of casually out of the corner of your eye to not make a big deal, and you can look at the person next to you and think, that is a royal priest. That person next to me, they're a chosen race. That person right there, they are a holy nation. She behind me, a possession for God's holiness. Who am I to be among such noble and dignified people? And it stirs up in us a firm standing to love our brothers and sisters. Whereas he says in chapter 1, verse 22, having purified our souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. So Christian, if, if you ever struggle to love your brothers and sisters, remember what your father did for you. Remember who you were when he came after you, and that should stir up the firm standing to love our brothers and sisters firmly. Oh, we, we could go on, and I, I would love to go on, but we really need to pause here. It's, it's time to respond in song, and I just want to invite the, the music team to come up. And Christian, your heavenly father planned to know you from eternity past. It was his plan that grace and peace would be multiplied to you. It's going to fortify you to stand firm. So let's ask God to give us the confidence to trust in him. And as we're going to sing right now, remember, it's not you, but it is Christ through you. He will keep you from falling. So let's stand together and celebrate what our God has done for us.